Welcome to the O'Reilly Design Podcast. I'm your host, Mary Tressler. Before we launch into our episode this week, I want to remind everyone that the O'Reilly Design Conference will take place March 19th through the 22nd, 2017 in San Francisco. Visit O'Reilly.com forward slash design con for more information and to register. Now to our episode. This week, I sit down with Andra Kay, Managing Director of Silicon Valley Robotics. We talk about the evolution, use cases, and ethics issues around robots. Enjoy the episode. Andra, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I'd love for you to start off by telling folks that are listening a bit about yourself and specifically how you ended up in the field of robotics and what you're currently doing. Well, I've taken a roundabout route into robotics as many people do, particularly when an area is a newly emerging area. I like to say that no one is native, everyone is an immigrant. (laughs) And although there are starting to be more in the way of robotics degrees offered at university, traditionally speaking, robotics has been a collection of other disciplines. And what unites them really is more the focus and the complexity of what you're working on when you're working on robotics. I was always interested in robots and in rockets from my early childhood. I, Although I have to say my initial life goal was to be an astronaut. Mm. But uh, what I've discovered is, um, for me, one of the formative things wasn't uh, was that I was so often told, well, that's an unusual aspiration for a girl. And, you know, this playing around with electronics, this wanting to be an astronaut, all of the things that I enjoyed as a child. And I have to say my parents encouraged those uh, pursuits, given their backgrounds in physics and science. But the thing that struck me is, why do people think that this is strange for girls? What is it about either being a girl or about robots and rockets? That means these two things don't go together. And it actually awakened in me more of a fascination for what is it in our society that steers some of us towards science and engineering and steers some of us away from it? And what is the impact going to be? How does this mean that we're shaping the way that we live our day-to-day lives? So I became much more interested in some of the bigger questions around our technologies and how they rolled out into society. Uh, But I did take kind of a sideways route. I went into film and television. And I look back on that and people say, well, that's very, very different to um, going into robotics. But in many ways, that was the most technologically sophisticated, creative pursuit Hmm. that you could really think about. And, you know, it allowed me to geek out on many of the aspects around producing film and television, around sound recording, editing around you know vi- visual effects, around animation, uh, around putting all of those things together. It's, it's very technologically complex, but it was harnessed for very creative pursuits. So that was where I initially went. And then I got a little bit more involved in um, online website work and watching the spread of mobile and internet technologies and and computers and what impact that had more broadly on our economy and on our society. So I went back to study the next wave of technology rollout because it was clear to me we'd seen some ripples as 
our technologies became digital rather than analog, and that that was going to continue to happen. And we were going to start to see every aspect of our lives being affected by technologies that were smart and connected. And ultimately, that's what you call a robot. So that's my roundabout route (laughs) back into robotics. It was something that I really uh, was fascinated by as a child, but we're only just now starting to see small examples of those sorts of science fiction robotics coming into our lives. And it's very, very early stages. Mm. But I think robotics has gotten very interesting. So what do you currently do? I've managed the Industry Association for Robotics in Silicon Valley, which turns out to be, frankly, I call this ground zero for service and social robotics. Not only do we have a huge number of research and development organizations in robotics, ranging from Stanford, Berkeley, and the other um, universities, but we have a number of national laboratories, and we have a number of um, private research groups, ranging from SRI International to uh, organizations like Other Lab, uh, Willow Garage before they closed, and uh, new incoming groups like Toyota Research Institute. So there is such a lot of early stage robotics work being developed in this region. Mm-hmm. It's also where you have the venture capital industry and a huge pool of experienced investors and software engineers with experience building not just um, enterprise software, but also the infrastructure to support that. So Silicon Valley is becoming the epicenter Mm -hmm. of robotics. And uh, I've been managing the industry group, which started as seeing robotics as a very small and new industry, and Silicon Valley as, as more or less an unknown area for robotics. And I think in the last five years, that's changed significantly. And now people will look to Silicon Valley to see what is happening in robotics and AI. And it seems like every major company and every government now has robotics and AI on their strategic roadmap. And that's just the measure of how things have shifted in that spectrum between research and the real world. I think it was uh, called crossing the chasm. Mm -hmm. And uh, Various aspects of robotics are really crossing the chasm. Interesting. So could you talk a little bit more about that? How would you describe the current state of robotics? I mean, it feels like it's it's still in its early days, but there there's clearly a lot of promise and a lot a lot more awareness of of its value. Absolutely. Now, when we say robotics is in its early days, we've actually had a very solid industrial robotics industry for the last fifty years. But it has been not very visible and very, what I would call stupid robotics these days. It's large, rigid robotics, and they've been used for manufacturing, for electronics, uh, automobile construction, welding, dangerous materials handling. And to a lesser extent, you've seen some of this technology used in some areas like mining Uh, port handling, some of those logistics, and uh, some defense industry applications. This is the big, expensive robotics industry. And it has had very little immediate impact on most people's lives. And most of us won't have seen robots in operation. 
because there were not that many of them in the real world. In fact, uh, Terry Gow, the uh, chairman of Foxconn, announced back in 2012 that he was going to install one million robots in his factories by the year 2014. And um, it alarmed a lot of people who were worried about robots taking jobs. But everybody in the robotics industry went, really? How on earth is that even possible? Because this sum total of industrial robots in the world was only around about one and a half million. Hmm. So we still rather need to be producing robots uh, before we start worrying about them <laughs> having such a massive impact on employment. Uh, but again, Factory robots tend to be seen by very, very few people. And what's changing right now is the robots of the 21st century are more affordable, they're smaller, they're more, more flexible, more agile, both physically and in terms of how easy they are to program to an extent. This is very early stages, but that's where things are leading. And one of the critical things is that they're there are now more collaborative robots, which we call, we call them collaborative robots because they are rated as safe for operation around people. Hmm. So it means that instead of having a closed cell workplace, uh, a, a workspace which is very, very clearly separated between where a robot operates and where everything else happens, we can start to consider ways of integrating robots into human activity whether that's having a compliant, safe, collaborative robot arm on a factory line that can be moved around, or whether that's having an autonomous vehicle that's navigating. And while initially this may happen more in factories where people are used to applying robots to as a solution, mm -hmm. it's starting to happen in areas that are non-factory based. So areas like airports, um, any kind of package handling facility, uh, retail malls, um, hospitals. Hospitals are actually early adopters. And one of the other areas that interests me is agriculture, because if we look at where the world has big problems that need to be solved, one of the clear issues is that our population is continuing to increase. It's going to be, it's well over 7 billion, heading towards 10 billion in the mm. next 10 or so years. And it's not just that the population is increasing, but the demands that we're making on our food production resources are increasing beyond the population increase. So hmm. everybody is predicting that we need to double food production in this next generation. So by the year 2040, how do we double the world's food production when we can't double the acreage? Mm. That's just not possible. In fact, we're losing arable land as the population increases because cities tend to be built on the exact same areas that are fertile and accessible. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So we're, we're losing our, our arable land. We're increasing our demand for protein in particular, which requires even more land to, to grow to tend or to harvest. Um, and here's the other thing, we're losing farmers. Uh, particularly coming from New Zealand and Australia, I'm very aware that we have one of the highest rates of urbanization in the world, but this is being mirrored around the world now. Australia is almost totally, um, Australians almost completely live in cities these days. 
and the average age of the of a person on the land is looking at retirement. They're within five years of of retirement age, and there is no replacement. Hmm. Most farmers have sent their kids to university, and most of them don't want to go back to a backbreaking manual labour job. So we've also lost, certainly in Australia and New Zealand, access to cheap seasonal labour. So I see shades of this same problem replicated in most every country around the world. The average, the population is increasingly urban. It's leaving the land. Mm -hmm. The average age of those who still remain on farms is increasing to retirement age and access to seasonal labor is drying up. Hmm. Interesting. So, so let's talk a little bit about, um, you're, you're giving a talk at the O'Reilly Design Conference around designing good robots. And I'm curious what you mean by that. Can you talk a little bit more about what you plan to cover and, and maybe give a few examples of what you mean by good robots? Absolutely. And look, I'll segue from agriculture across because I think if you look at robots and agriculture, it is such a clearly good proposition Mm -hmm. to look towards robotics to solve that problem. There is such a clear problem in so many ways. And also, farms are an area where you have clearly far fewer people. So it's Almost, it's it's closer to a factory uh, setting. It's like an outdoor factory. Mm-hmm. Really. You have far fewer problems for robots to solve to operate successfully in an agricultural environment. So, roboticists and people building robotics businesses are aware that that is a very good opportunity space. Mm-hmm. That's been one of the ways that the robotics industry has looked at what is a good robot. And I think that's a perfectly great way to look at how do you make good robots is you find a really good problem for them to solve Mm -hmm. in an area where it's comparatively easy to introduce robots. Hmm. But that's not enough. We're starting to see robots rolling out in a lot of other areas. And I see companies that are potentially putting the wrong robots into the wrong sorts of places. And it's easy for them to perhaps craft a story about why this is a good idea and get people excited about it. But I think that either as they are in place over the next few years, people will start to realize that this was not the best way of solving the problem. Mm -hmm. Or what worries me is that we might start to put in place something that was not the best solution. Now, I was going to refer to the old um, beta versus VHS mm. uh, debate, which, you know, we know in, in the mythology of it, uh, beta was clearly the better technology, and yet VHS won the product marketplace. It, mm-hmm. it won the business case. Uh, but then VHS did provide something that was more valuable to the consumer. Uh, I think that this is a fascinating way to look at where are we putting in robots? Where are they going to get traction? Where are they going to work well? And can we avoid putting the wrong sort of robots in where they can start to, we can really get network effects that are bad? Mm. You know, the thing that scares me is the idea that we'll get lock in to a certain technological solutions that end up causing more problems 
than going another way might have. And I think this is the time very early on in an industry when we should be doing everything that we can to look at as far as possible at the shape of the whole industry and learn from the mistakes of previous technology rollouts. This is going to take place over a whole generation. If we look back and we look at the spread of the automobile, it took 30 years to reshape our cities and our suburbs and for the ecology of the car, the social Mm -hmm. ecology of the car to come into place. It changed jobs, it changed culture, it changed law, and it changed the infrastructure. So we're at the start of the rollout of robotics. Mm -hmm. How can we do the best that we can to see things rolling out in the best pathway? So I've been tracking groups that look at the ethics and the philosophy of robotics and also discussions around law and standards. And it seems to me that valuable as each of those groups are, they're often acting after the fact. Hmm. And design is the field that operates ahead of time, as it were. So for me, this is the most fruitful area to look at. How do we get the best possible robots out in the world today? How do we engage with robotics as it's being built in the earliest stages. And, you know, I think the design community can play a very important role there. We've, um, a number of groups have been, have met and workshopped and discussed various approaches mm-hmm. to this. I am most in favor of some guidelines that I've adapted from a number of workshops that took place, particularly, uh, from the UK, the uh, I'm blanking on the name of the organisation, but uh, you can give it to me afterwards. Yes, the um, the EPSRC 2010 principles of robotics, and I've adapted them into what I've kind of laughingly called the five laws of robotics, <laughs> and I just had to call it that because so many people still look towards Isaac Asimov's laws of robotics as creating a template for the robotics industry. And to me, that's laughable. It is, um, I think even at the time, his stories talked about all the reasons why his laws didn't work. So they're really examples (laughs) of what's wrong with the laws of robotics. And yet people still say, well, they're the best general purpose laws of robotics, but they fall more into the law and ethics side, which tends to happen after the case if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, it's, they're so loose as to be completely unenforceable. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't want to have loose ethical guidelines that give you no indication for how you can achieve that. It, um, mm-hmm. I think we have plenty of politicians that can do that. Right. right. I, <laughs> I, I want to see some decent guidelines that say, this is a bad direction, this is a good direction. And this extends the the five laws of robotics that uh, I've described relate specifically to physical systems, to embodied robots. But at the same time, I think they can also be um, transferred across to algorithms, Hmm. to AI. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm fortunately there are a number of groups discussing the ethics of the algorithm and of data collection. 
as well because that's often even more invisible. Mm -hmm. And things that are invisible are where we do get into trouble. So if I just uh, talk you through, for me, transparency and visibility, Mm -hmm. that is one of the critical design guidelines. And that's the fifth law of robotics in my list. So just running through the list, we start right at the very high level, top down one that is the first one that people will think of, which is that a robot should not be designed as a weapon. Mm. And secondly, that robots should comply with existing law, including privacy law. And what follows for me from this is the third one, that robots are products. And as such, they should be safe, reliable, and not misrepresent their capabilities. And I think that is actually a a very significant Mm -hmm. one that we're seeing a lot of companies stretch that one way too much at the moment. The fourth one is that this is more sophisticated argument, but robots are manufactured artifacts and they convey the illusion of emotion and agency. And that should not be misused to exploit us. And there are many situations in which that could be misused. Mm -hmm. Now, the final one, as I said, is it should be possible to find out who is responsible for a robot. Now, that gets difficult. That seems very obvious, but it does get difficult. Who does own or control a robot? And is it the software? Is it the hardware? Is it the person who's using it? Is it the person that's built it? Each of these laws or guidelines unpacks into some complex things that would need to be negotiated in each situation. But it speaks towards the heart of what I think a lot of the ethical and philosophical dilemmas are about. And it points towards the fact that in many cases, we have an existing legal framework that says these are the things that society considers acceptable, Mm -hmm. and these are the things that society does not. And if you're following these good design guidelines, then you're building something that is going to fit into what we broadly know Mm -hmm. is considered acceptable social behavior. Unfortunately, it's very easy for people to just to do something because it's new and it's unregulated, and then they can do something that turns out to be potentially very poor. I mean, 3D printing weapons, there's mm-hmm. one example. Mm-hmm. Um, uneducated use of drones is another example. Mm-hmm. So if we look at drone technology, for example, physically, those are dangerous flying objects and they can be dangerous to aircraft and they can be dangerous to anybody underneath them. And yet when they reached a very low price point, you can go to Costco and get a drone and you have no uh, education that comes with that drone. Mm-hmm. I've purchased drones at um, a number of places and you are not compelled to learn about safe operation. Well, that is coming into place, but it's taken many years of dickering with the regulatory bodies to mm-hmm. work out how do they police this? At what level do they do so? And in the meantime, the industry has been rapidly evolving and everybody was able to get drones under the Christmas tree. Mm-hmm. So it, it relied a lot on user groups, the community and common sense to say things like, do not fly your drone over the head of your children's sports event. That could be dangerous. Do not uh, fly several drones together. Do not fly them out in the wind. Uh, 
do not fly them near airports. And, you know, there was a community of practice that grew up and shared good use guidelines while waiting for official regulatory structure Mm. to be built. So it highlights the fact that you can get in early and it's clear to see some common sense, good principles. And the more that we can do to share and showcase those as early as possible, the better it is for us all. Mm. So true. So true. So, you know, you've touched upon some really interesting topics. I mean, the idea that there needs to be a lot more thoughtful planning around this space than just saying, oh, this is cool. Let me try it or let me build something because I can. So one of the the other questions I have for you, and, and you've talked a little bit about this, um, you know, the use cases for, for robots. I mean, agriculture is certainly a huge one. Um, you mentioned healthcare. I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about that. Absolutely. And I have to say, in general, I'm delighted that design is now so popular is perhaps the wrong word, becoming so much more important because I think for far too long, robotics has been a little bit engineering driven. It's been, well, we can build it, therefore we shall. Mm. But as people, and I mean, I've been around a heck of a lot of robotics research labs where you see the same projects being done over and over again, and it involves fetching beer and you know, <laughs> some similar, similar things. It's, it's what I call the kind of taco copter model. Hmm. You know, you can probably make a drone deliver a taco once or twice or a beer. And while that's fun, is that really the best application right. for that technology? In fact, you know, potentially dangerous, let alone a trivial time waste. Mm-hmm. But as robotics engineers and researchers have become interested in building businesses, then they have paid a lot more attention to growing a proper business. You don't get investment if you don't have a solid team with the ability to gain market traction and uh, create a business model that understands distribution and marketing. And uh, this tends to put design right on the roadmap early on in a way that Perhaps it isn't way back when we're just looking at prototype applications for robotics. Now, when we're looking at early stage entrepreneurial startups, we're seeing more of an interest in, is this something that people will use? How do we find out who would be interested? How do we really dig into this and work out what our addressable market is? Mm -hmm. And um, so the healthcare industry has had robots for a longer time than many other areas. And that's not just surgical robots. That's actually, they've had quite a few logistics robots delivering meals or laundry. And because it's been a comparatively constrained environment that's uh, large enough to make economic sense for these applications, the generally speaking, say, hospitals and healthcare facilities have been a little bit more open to having robotics. Certainly, there are a lot of um, issues around making jobs better for people to reduce staff turnover. So anything that can limit the amount of, say, heavy lifting and pushing Mm -hmm. that staff in facilities do is very, very desirable. But there are some other areas of uh, healthcare, direct healthcare, again, not specifically talking about surgical Mm -hmm. type intervention, but looking at how can we make patient care uh, more effective and more economical and affordable, whether it's triaging a situation or providing faster access to 
say, equipment like defibrillators or um, solutions like telepresence mm-hmm. for uh, surgeons and then teleoperated medicine. There's been a lot of exploration around these areas. One of the areas that I think is actually coming, becoming ripe right now is the use of social robots to improve healthcare outcomes. Hmm. And that can range from a new company like Moti that is directly uh, marketing a behavior change device to, to consumer. Uh, and that's aimed at uh, Moti interacts with you in quite simple fashion. You push a button and it will kind of talk back to you and display lights that it will express emotion back to hmm. you, ha- happy or sad. And it will coach you through a habit change. And th- that has some very simple uh, cognitive underpinnings. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you want to change your behavior, you need to um, trigger a better behavior and get a reward for it. So interesting. This, beha- this kind of psychological equation is underpinning some potentially very interesting applications not just for Moti, but a range of other social robots that we might be interacting with, whether it's, say, um, uh, some of the, the other ones that have been in the healthcare space, uh, Paro, the SEAL robot, which is a companion device for the elderly, particularly people with Alzheimer's or dementia. Mm-hmm. And it's a non-threatening, calming interaction. Another company is Catalia Health. And they're somewhere in between Paro and Moti. It's a more sophisticated robot that has a verbal conversation with you, very specifically about following your pharmaceutical, following a treatment or a a pharmaceutical regime. Mm -hmm. They're being rolled out as part of your prescribed treatment. So Hmm. Uh, Catalia Health have a small robot called Mabu, which is about a foot high oh. and has a face with two big, big eyes <laughs> that can track you and look directly at you as it talks to you. And the idea is that Mabu accompanies your complex drug regime. So you have to take two of these things in the morning and three of those things and four of these other ones. And maybe makes you feel a little bit sick or woozy or something. But Mabu talks to you in the morning, tries to engage you in conversation the next time you come into your living room or kitchen, asks you if you're feeling sick or, you know, if you're feeling like a walk, mm-hmm. and can remind you to take your next dosage. And if you're starting to change, so first off, we know that this, um, this has been clinically proven, it helps you stick to your treatment regime. But secondarily, the interchange can also pinpoint early problems, you know, like increased side effects or some other change that's Mm. happening. The information that Mabu is collecting in conversation with you can trigger alerts to the health provider. So Mabu itself becomes a, um, and it augments the healthcare professionals by giving them some ability to to be in your home. And mm-hmm. this also, this opens up many promising applications. 
And it also opens up many that are far less constrained. Mm-hmm. Clear, clearly, when we have social robots in the health space to comply with the existing um, regulations and controls, they will be very, very carefully looked at. Data transfers will be rigorously designed and mm-hmm. constructed, and issues around privacy and permission are at the forefront of everyone's consideration. Mm. But what happens when the same types of behavior and types of robot interactions are utilized in a different area? How so? Well, if we can change people's behavior Mm -hmm. through social interaction with the device, there are so many other opportunities in our life to have this happen. Whether it's our autonomous car or whether it's a trip to the local uh, gas station or 7-Eleven, any retail mm-hmm. outlet that we go into, or possibly any um, social mm-hmm. place that we go into. And this is looking into the future. But that's where if all of these robots were uh, being developed with the same rigorous guidelines that the health field uh, imposes, mm-hmm then we'd be fine. But I don't see anywhere that, <laughs> c- that compels this. And this is why I think that even if it's voluntary adherence to these guidelines, to promote that there are guidelines for the design and deployment of robots mm-hmm. is still a very important thing. Absolutely. It's, um, it's in- right. You can't, you can't um, decide how people are going to adhere or not. But to have them and to build awareness for them is is key. I mean, you hit on it very early. All of this sort of stems from the the issue of, you know, what is the purpose of of building something? And is it solving a real problem? Um, which is obviously at the heart of, of design. I'm curious to know, this is my last question for you. I'm curious to know, you just named a few in the healthcare. What other projects or people are grabbing your attention? Who do you think is doing some of the most interesting work these days? Well, there is some home robots starting to come out, and I think many of them are overhyped. Mm-hmm. But many of them are actually informed by years of research in customer need finding. So I think Mayfield Robotics is one that will be launching at CES. Mm -hmm. And I know they've done a lot of research and a lot of design work around developing an affordable home robot. So we're going to see a lot of robots that don't quite meet the mark, but Mm -hmm. we will see some that do. And that's the home space. I think we will still see more robots that are going to be changing our retail environment primarily and hospitality. So everything from the food service to the construction of eateries. So you have Saviot delivering things in the hotel. You have Momentum Machines being one of the robots that's going to change how food's prepared. And you have Eatsa who are looking at the whole experience as being a um, a kind of frictionless experience, Hmm. very similar to the Amazon Go new mm. retail experience. So Eats's vision is that you order by phone and tablet, that you walk in and your meal is individually customized, prepared behind the scenes by robots. But all you need to do is go and pick up your individual meal box. It's um, There's a lot of interest in really reimagining, I think, our infrastructure 
around a lot of these things. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to be seeing robots acting as kiosk robots uh, in museums, in airports, and in shopping malls. I think uh, SoftBank has Pepper in the West Fields as we speak. Mm-hmm. We have um, fellow robots. We're also rolling out in shopping malls. And you have Simbi Robotics, who's doing inventory management, and Fetch Robotics, who's doing logistics and warehousing. So you might or might not see those robots. There are a few other companies working in this space as well, um, Kiva and Amazon, Bossa Nova. Um, but I think increasingly you will be seeing some sort of mobile robot delivering things or scanning things or uh, potentially uh, moving some things around, uh, even you know using arms to manipulate them on shelves. And I think... Uh, William Gibson said it, the future is here. It's just not evenly distributed yet. The future is in prototype right now in a few locations. (laughs) But as these things become successful and they need to prove that they're robust, reliable, and are creating value, then we will start to see a rapid uh, uptake. That's fantastic. The future is in prototype. That is a fantastic thought. I will, I appreciate it. You really opened my eyes to the, the number of applications and the, the varied applications of robots and who's building what today. So I, you've given me a lot of food for thought and I hope to our listeners as well to go out and check out some of these companies and what they're up to. So thank you again. It was a pleasure. It's been a pleasure. I only hope that we have more people with design sensibilities and a concern about solving real problems moving into robotics. Excellent. Thank you. And I'll see you at the conference. I'm looking forward to the conference. Thank you for listening. You can reach Andra on Twitter at Robot Launch. If you like the show, remember to subscribe and leave a positive review through iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, or SoundCloud. (laughs) 